If you read through the redacted documents behind the Danforth shooting, it is really very clear that there were red flags waving everywhere. We got these documents today after a whole lot of work with a whole lot of lawyers and a lot of money to unseal these documents into the Danforth shooting because, frankly, we don't know anything after three months. Nothing. And uh, now we learn that Mr. Hussein was, in fact, a ticking time bomb. That two days before the shooting, he had been arrested for shoplifting, was released... But he was known to the police way back until 2010. And there are you know, several reported incidents of an emotionally disturbed man. The documents, and, and this is only on first reading, so there's lots to go through on them, but there's evidence that once inside the shooter's home, police had found in his bedroom ammunition and electronic devices suggesting that an incident was planned. A police dog detected explosive materials in a drawer under his bed, a bag of Coke. And on that particular day, we learned that the shooter finished his work at 2.30 at Shopper's Drug Mart. And when he went home, he got into a conversation with his twin brother who basically told him, you know, get your stuff together. Get your act together. Time to get married. Time to settle down. And instead, Mr. Faisal went out and had a cigarette and called himself a name. And then on the night of the shooting, he left his house to go for a walk at 8.30, and that's the last time he was seen by anybody. The next time his parents would hear about him is when police would find the phone he had laying on the ground beside him, and it was ringing. And when the police answered it, it was his parents looking for him, and that's when they told him, go to the police station. We learned that he did not have a lot of friends. He loved guns from a very young age had been involved in things like armed robbery. He had gone to Pakistan to visit family with his father a couple of years ago, and his father made him go to a local mosque, but it says he was not all that observant. But here's interesting, one takeaway, and we'll probably hear more in the coming days, but the accounts told to police by mom and dad were very, very different. The mom said he had never traveled, never gone overseas, didn't have any kind of mental illness. His dad, however... Sorry, his mom said he had a mental illness. His dad said he was a loner, but he had no mental illness. So there's conflicting reports between the parents. But the question is, you know, the warnings were all there. How were they missed? How were they missed? Let's bring in Tom Quigg into this conversation. He's a former military intelligence officer, former intelligence analyst for the RCMP, as well as a court-appointed expert on jihadist terrorism. He joins me now. Hello there, Tom. Good evening, Alex. Thanks for inviting me to On Point. Well, you've been talking about this for an awful long time. You've done a lot of podcasts on it. You've been looking into this and and pushing the envelope. Did anything stick out? You know, it took us a long time to get this particular um, information unsealed in court. So first of all, that is a question. Why are we fighting so hard to get this information to begin with? Well, yeah, that's actually a very good question, and it's a common problem right now. Increasingly, you are seeing anytime there is an incident where there may have been a terrorist or an Islamist sort of slant to the problem, the police immediately go silent. 
Um, just one other quick example, uh, which very common. Uh, on the 12th of August this year, there was a vehicle lined up at the screening facility on Parliament Hill on yep. a Saturday night. Mm-hmm. It jumps out of line, it runs over a couple of people, and the police immediately say it's not terrorism. And worse than that, Stephanie Dumas, who's the uh, media relations person with the RCMP, said at no time was there a threat to public safety and security. Except, of course, they actually ran people over on the sidewalk and a woman with a baby in her stroller had to make a run for her life. So, you know, this this issue of withholding information from the public is becoming increasingly common. We see the same thing with the Mississauga Bombay Bell restaurant bombing as well. Police are saying there's no indication of terrorism, but they don't give anything else. So it's a common problem right across the board. And like you said, I think the media is going to have to work a lot harder in the future to dig this information out. Well, we shouldn't have we should never have let the precedent uh, stand, quite frankly. And I'm not sure how we got ourselves into this place where we just kind of let, uh, you know, the the silence of cone of silence fall on these investigations. And then all of a sudden we don't get our, our questions answered. And you're right on that Ottawa issue. And I think it was the Ottawa police who kind of slipped and said, oh, yes, there was an incident. And that's really the only reason we know about it. But when you look at the documents that we have now um, been given access to, and there's still a lot of documents that are blacked out or redacted, uh, what is your takeaway? Should this guy have been stopped? Uh, there's nothing in these documents, really, one way or the other, that's decisive uh, in saying whether the police should have been able to arrest this guy or investigate him more strongly before. And here's something I'll tell you a lot of people probably don't want to hear, but when I worked for the RCMP National Security Section, I was stunned to learn how many people there are running around loose in our society who, shall we say, have highly questionable backgrounds or incredibly difficult personal situations. Um, So while this guy kind of stands out when you look back at him for his personal issues back in 2010, his criminal issues related to shoplifting and whatever else, um, he's not that unusual in that sense. Uh, Just one quick example that I happen to know the numbers for, um, you may recall that Momen Kawaja was arrested here in Canada on terrorism charges in 2004. And in the United Kingdom, after a further terrorist attack uh, where friends of Momen Kawaja were involved, people said, well, why weren't these guys arrested? And the answer is the four individuals that carried out the attack were four of 1,200 people that the British police had under surveillance under similar circumstances. So the reality is um, it takes a huge amount of people to keep somebody under surveillance. Mm -hmm. uh, And the number of people who should be under surveillance is quite stunning. So it's a huge problem. Again, I think part of the problem the police have here, and I would trace the problem back to the politicians. I think they're the ones driving it. Uh, We need to have a public debate on this stuff. We need to get this information out there. The citizenry actually have to help the police on this, but the citizenry increasingly don't trust the police and the politicians for exactly these kinds of reasons. So it's sort of a self-perpetuating problem. The public needs to get out there and actually move on these issues, but they won't unless they trust the police. The police need to increase their trust, but they're not doing this by going silent on us. Well, so it's a big issue. It's a big problem. We're going to see more of it. Well, I'm afraid you're right, but um, these things are becoming more and more political and, and used, I think, almost for political points. And so that's not in the public's interest. I mean, this guy was on the radar, not just because of his mental illnesses, but he also would have been on the radar because of his brother, who was also uh, known to police or is known to police. He's still in a coma, as I understand. Understand, um, 
he had an incident or you know allegations that he got involved in drugs and had some kind of OD on them, and he's still in the hospital. But he's also connected to alleged gang activity. So this this guy, uh, Mr. Faisal, even though he was on the radar for things like mental illness and shoplifting, I mean, his brother, would he have not been an exacerbating factor for this guy to keep him under more of a watch? Um, yeah, especially... Uh... <laughs> especially when you go back and look at the whole Carfentano issue, right. the fact that he was arrested with Ansari and all that sort of stuff, that, that actually to me is the, is the single most important issue in all of this, is the amount of Carfentanil that guy had uh, was absolutely stunning, both in terms of its value and its lethality. And you're talking about uh, the guy so, that was uh, a, basically a bail, a bail surety, was he not? Uh, for... He was the surety for Faisal's brother, yes, right, you're right. correct. Uh, and the fact that that guy had... You know, umpteen million dollars worth of carfentanil and a collection of guns. Uh, to me, that's where the center of the story must lie, and perhaps this is the reason we're being shut out of it. Uh, there's a huge story there as well. But again, uh, to get back to your issue of surveillance and why aren't there more? Why aren't they keeping closer reach on these guys? To keep one person under effective surveillance for a period of a week, you're looking at about 20 people. Uh, so keeping these kind of folks under surveillance on any kind of an extended basis is a hugely resource-intensive problem. Uh, and this is at a time, of course, when police forces actually seem to be being cut back, and they seem to be putting a lot more people into things like diversity training and this kind of stuff, rather than putting them into frontline policing like going down streets at night chasing bad guys. So, yeah, it's, that's another issue is uh, manpower, resources, and how police forces are being managed. Um, essentially, we've taken the policing out of police forces. So, you know, learn mm-hmm. to love it. We're going to get more of this kind of problem until such time. You know, the politicians feel pressure from the citizenry who say, we want the police to start doing policing again. Okay, and then they'll say, well, we'll ban guns because they don't, that's what their go-to is. But, you know, interestingly, in your mind, this investigation, is it done? I mean, do you get the sense no. that there's a lot more to this story that we haven't heard? Uh, I have a feeling there's a lot more to this story we haven't heard, starting, I mean, just right up with motive. Where did he actually get the gun from? Did he get the gun from his brother, which seems like a possibility? That's kind of an issue. Uh, yeah, there's a whole lot of loose ends there that aren't uh, being tied together. And until we get those, you know, people are going to remain doubtful. Uh, the other thing, just I'll point out, is the to the best of my knowledge, the autopsy has not been released either. Mm-hmm. And that to me is fascinating is, you know, the poor man's dead. He's not going to be charged with anything because he's dead. But yet we get this whole business. Well, you know, there's an investigation and privacy rights and all this sort of stuff. That's why we can't talk about it. Mm-hmm. And to me, again, it doesn't line up. You know, tell us what actually happened. Tell us the evidence you've got. Uh, because it's there. And, you know, if there is a larger investigation there, well, then say that, you know, that would be fine as well. If the police came out and said, look, you know, we understand your problem, but you have to understand there's a much bigger investigation going on here. Well, that would be fine, too. Sure. Yeah. But they won't say that. Yeah. So here's yeah. And here's one other quick thought. To the best of my knowledge, again, I might be wrong, but I think there has been one police press conference on this entire issue since the event occurred. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, again, is just staggering. This is like the first or second most important security incident in Toronto and in perhaps all of Ontario this year, and it rates one press conference. True. And again, the only reason, Tom, we're talking about it is because lawyers and media outlets fought uh, to get this them removed. Otherwise, we'd still be sitting with no knowledge at all about this. I got to leave it on that note. Thanks so much for joining us. 
Cheers. Thanks, Alex. That is Tom Quiggin, uh, who knows an awful lot about this kind of thing and, and clearly sees a story here that's not being told. So we'll continue to uh, bug him uh, to see how this kind of information of what he's seeing in it, because there's a lot to go through. And, and in the coming days, I expect you're going to hear more. Uh, but there's a whole bunch of redacted documents here that are not being released. And all that, I think, is the information that uh, will kind of connect all the dots in the end. On point, I'm Alex Pearson. This is Global News Radio.